Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts and I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, how is it going genuinely on this Monday night? Are you well? Yeah, I'm well. A little bit tired after the working day. There was a stream on Friday at the company and they got a lot of snacks in to support the people doing the stream. So I've been working my way through the leftover snacks. I was eating these incredibly anemic, individually wrapped pano chocolates. Right. <laughs> How many do you have to eat collectively to add up to a whole one? I would say each one was a whole pan of chocolate. They weren't tiny. They were. Oh right, right, right. They were, but they were just sort of like almost like vacuum packed or something. I don't really know what was going on with them. But yeah, I ate some of those today. Nice. And that was pretty much your day. So that's good. I ate a Galaxy Ripple. I've got this new bit I do at the office that my desk neighbor really hates, where I eat a Galaxy Ripple and it's really flaky. And then I deliberately let a, <laughs> I deliberately let a flake of it like melt onto my lip and pretend I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah. Are you, a, are you a scumbag, Matthew? I just... <laughs> It happened once for real, right? And they made too much of a fuss about it. So now I actively encourage it. Uh, so this is this is your life forever now. Is me doing this basically? <laughs> I uh, admire how obnoxious that is. That's good. Uh, well done. I had a sort of a slightly uneventful weekend, I suppose. But I ended up. I played a bit of Pacific Drive. I played a bit of that, which is a very intricate game. I haven't quite got my arms around, and therefore don't feel like I can talk about it with like great authority on this on this episode. But hmm. I kind of almost admire how complex it is. Like, all these different car parts you have to think about and upgrade. Um, the simple act of getting out of your car, you have to like flick the, uh, the you know, turn the key and then you know t- touch the handbrake, all that stuff. I sound like a guy who doesn't drive, don't I? <laughs> um, yeah, I sort of very unconvincing. Um, but yes, that, that sounds like me after my nine tests. <laughs> That's you getting driven around by uh, Catherine. Don't forget to touch the brake. That's you in the car in the passenger seat. Um, but there is a whole bunch of stuff, cool stuff that we're going to talk about in this episode, Matthew. I'm uh, I'm excited to get into some what we've been playing sort of gubbins because it's been a little while since we've done one i think we skipped february entirely for these episodes so nice to get a like, refresher on what's going on it is a preposterously stacked start to the year it feels like there's four or five game of the year contenders in the ether already or at least you know top 10 sort of vying yeah. for that top 10 slots do you think that's that's a fair assessment of where it's at with games but it's become increasingly this way I still don't really understand why it is. Like, whenever I go to press events this time of year, there's inevitably the conversation where we're like, oh, it's a bit busy, isn't it? All these great games coming out. I wonder why that is. Always hoping that the gaming PRs or marketing people, whoever in the room, will offer me some, like, magic insight as to, oh, well, it's this. This is the definitive answer why. Um, but I haven't got it yet, but I am. I'm always happy to have it. I mean, it's great to come back and get straight into it in the new year yeah i think so especially because a lot of the stuff that has wowed me or is wowing other people was not on my radar at all at the start of the year so Mm. that's quite a nice surprise whether it's something you know kind of indie shaped or whether it's like a a, you know a week weekly there is a new live service game coming out basically (laughs) then from like power world to hell divers and shrouded there's just a whole bunch of these these things so yeah it's an it's exciting year no matter what your sort of flavor of game is i think so that is exciting it's just a an appetite for there always to be something amazing so we anoint something amazing regardless uh i think it is honestly just a log jam caused by the uh, pandemic sort of like uh, big money times um that's my mm. theory is that it's just that it takes roughly three to four years to make a game now maybe even slightly longer than that 
but you know it's sort of like if you were green lighting stuff back then sort of maybe more of the indie sized games then maybe it makes sense that you can get those games to market now and therefore there are fucking loads of them yeah i think um we basically are in the sort of like you know the sort of like the great gatsby good times before the wall street crash comes basically so um enjoy mm. it my friend that's a lot bleaker the fun, than I the, fun, the fun bit of the baz Luhrmann film with all the cool <laughs> music and fireworks yeah before you know gatsby gets spoiler alert killed at the end and um it's the, <laughs> it's the end of the spoiler alert. i can't believe you just ruined great gatsby <laughs> it's available in the public domain people should have read it by now on a, on a pdf on their ipad oh, yeah that's on you <laughs> yeah exactly so what we've been playing and i think that the undoubtedly the event to get into here is you have played Final Fantasy VII Remake through to its completion. But I don't know how you've done this. So you did Like a Dragon Infinite Wealth and yeah. you've done Final Fantasy VII Remake and now you're significantly into Final Fantasy VII Rebirth and all of that has happened since the start of the year. Would you like to explain what happened, Matthew? It's the motivation of work. So Infinite Wealth I had to review. So that drove me to complete it and just cram it into every hour of the day. Uh, I've got this new routine, which helps in that I I wake up a little early and I try and play an hour and a half of games before I go to work. It slowly adds up, you know? Yeah. You kind of sort of chip away at these things. I've had some pretty good weekends where I've selfishly just sat in the living room for both Saturday and Sunday playing games. That's no. helped. Nice. Uh, we're doing a couple of shorter episodes a month. That helps. Yeah, that is good. I'm glad that's <laughs> this, sort of this very off. episode is the reason why I'm able to play these games. Uh, honestly, it's the motivation thing. Infinite Wealth review remake because I knew Rebirth was coming up and I really wanted to play that, and I knew I was going to have to talk about it for work as well. So remake, I absolutely mainlined. I played that incredibly fast. So I say incredibly fast, like it's. I still, I don't know, it took me like 35 hours or something. Yeah. I, you know me, if I've got, if I've got a mission, it, it kind of gets me going. Yeah, f- for sure. So this is a good time for this, obviously, because Rebirth is out by the time people are listening to this. So mm-hmm. it has scored better reviews than any Final Fantasy has in recent memory. Um, I don't think since since 12 has a game drawn this much acclaim in that series. So it seems like it's getting a lot of, uh, you know, a really kind of positive reception. But I'm kind of interested in your little journey with Final Fantasy 7 Matthew because you played disc one last year for this podcast and it was one of I think one of our best episodes last year it was a people really liked it I think you discovering this for the first time and Mm. now you have played more Final Fantasy 7 technically than I have which is an amazing (laughs) sort of leapfrog act you've done um very impressed so I suppose to start with what did you make of remake and coming to it this late, I suppose, what, what what sort of preconceptions did you have going in and what was the reality versus those preconceptions? I'd been told that it did the iconic set pieces in really pleasing ways and that was the game at its best, but that there was almost like twice as much game which was filler in between and not very good. And that's kind of true. I guess that's, that's you know, the, the obvious take and one that I mostly believe. I will say I never had a terrible time with it because I, like, fundamentally really enjoyed the combat in it. So as long as combat's happening, I was having a pretty good time. Like, if it, if it asked me to do, like, a long sewer sequence or one of several construction yards or building sites or, you know, variations of that... You know, as long as I was smashing stuff up with the combat, which I thought was quite well judged and quite well pitched in terms of difficulty, I didn't really mind. It has a great soundtrack. That really helps. So even if it is, like, 
oh, you've got to spend an hour turning off some giant light bulbs for some reason. <laughs> you know, you're doing it to like some crazy remix of a tune that was really good in Final Fantasy VII, so you don't really mind, like your head's kind of bopping along to it. It is incredibly bloated, but it was made with love, and the sequences that were great were really great, and it ends on a high, like I really loved the whole Shinra sequence. Maybe I came out with a bit of a buzz from the whole Shinra HQ climbing that, and like visually it just looked so good. I mean, I know it was a PS4 game first, I was playing on ps5 but was just really impressed with the production values of it It just felt this felt like enormous in places given that it only had like a handful of locations thought they really sold you on the scale of the city and that was it was just really neat i can't really remember what your take on remake was back in the day yeah i think so i think i put it in the middle of my top 10 of that year i don't think it got near the top um and i think that was because i think i thought that because it was only set in the slums primarily as in the space you can actually explore and sort of like you know and where most of the game is set is basically you know two towns a train station and some corridors in between yeah It, it was a little bit like the canvas was too small I kind of got why they did it that way, and I, I I sort of always knew in the back of my mind that if they did this first one, they could kind of crack the mechanics and the combat and, you know, just so many elements of the game, and then the next one, or the next two, as it would turn out, could then build on that and take us out into what we know is the, you know, huge world of really cool locations and um, different bits and pieces that await players beyond Midgar. And so I thought... It was a little bit like, I I think I said as well that there was a a pandemic element at play. So, you know, I remember spending a very miserable birthday in April 2020, just playing this. And like, it's got quite a sort of downbeat tone anyway, I think, when you're going around Midgar. It's kind of like, there's that very gentle sort of like guitar track that plays, quite mournful. And there was something about that and the pandemic combined that just caused quite a lot of psychic damage. Not the developer's fault, but it was the timing of when it arrived. The other thing I think you've got in your favour is you don't have the baggage of having waited for a remake of this game. So right, yeah. you haven't, you didn't have the thing where, you know, there was a, a the PS3 tech demo they did where, you know, they showed the very start of the game and Cloud and that tease that turned out to be for nothing. And then 2015, they finally announced they're doing it. And then they, they scrapped that version of it and get, you know, and, and bring it in-house. And then you have to wait another five years for it to arrive. So I think after all that, the fact that it was just Midgar and, you know, I think it pretty much ticked all the boxes for me otherwise. I love the combat. I thought the combat was really well judged, kind of mix of sort of the in-between point of Final Fantasy 13 and Final Fantasy 15, really. Just sort of like, you know, it has elements of turn-based combat to it. It has the stagger stuff from 13. It has... Yeah. It's sort of like, yeah, I guess it's like in the middle of a triangle between FF7, 15 and 13. And I think that just really hit the spot. And like you, I, I did really like the Shinra finale. I, the cavalcade of boss fights at the end, I found quite grueling. <laughs> particularly the sort of like, the one you fight when you're on a motorcycle. Yeah. Um, just remember that being such yeah, a fun... That, yeah, that is a bit tough. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think like uh, such a great fun sequence in the original game as well. Just that mini game of just like whacking those dudes with their buster sword and then it's a boss fight and then you yeah. move on. It's it's a really nice... In this, it was like it was, it was hard enough that I was like, oh, it's making me question how I felt about this part of the game originally to to begin with and I don't I don't I don't know how I feel about it and then the other thing I had was they brought the Sephiroth stuff way forward from where it is in the um 
in the actual game. And I think that robs the character of his mystique a little bit. Yeah. But I say all that and I still really like I still really liked it for the most part. I thought I like the ways it expanded on the story. I like the the characterization I think was a, a bit stronger. The uh, Square Enix are really, really good at localizing their games. So the dialogue's just really spot on as well. Apart from the the rest of Avalanche, they they are bad hangs. Not just Jesse who was already anointed uh, bad worst hang romantic in our Patreon episode, <laughs> uh, but also Biggs and Biggs and um, Wedge. <coughs> I just I, I just found them lame comic side characters. Yeah, and I suppose the other thing I didn't really know how to feel about was um, I, me- I remember going into Seven Remake thinking they were going to move away from Crisis Core. They were kind of like, oh well, you know, this is its own thing. You know, Zach was not part of the story and all this stuff. And I thought, well, I really like Crisis Core. I thought it was a stronger, one of the stronger spin-offs. And I thought it'd have no bearing whatsoever on the remake. Little did I know, it has a fucking massive bearing on remake. And you just have to wait until the very end for it to to become clear why that is. As the there's a, basically an alternate ending to Crisis Core that intersects with the story of the original FF7. I don't really know where that was going, so that was a bit of a question mark to to end with. But I yeah. liked it overall. That's a long answer to your question, Matthew. Maybe I'm in a bit of a honeymoon period with Final Fantasy 7, but I was just I was just really up for it. It's really shiny as well. And the th- the thing they really get is they know that when you get to certain locations, the ones which are like seared on your mind, they really have to go all out and deliver. So there are like individual rooms, like when you go into the the Mako, Mako, how do you pronounce it, reactors, the kind of reveal of those rooms and the scale of them, and that's where like the graphics are at their shiniest. Like, yes, you've got all this kind of junkyard that looks a bit shitty, but they know where to push the budget. If you are a fan, dare I say, student of AAA excess, stuff like that is, is very pleasing to me, you know? Yeah, I get that. And it's sort of, again, I think just coming to it years later when no one else is talking about it and people are just hyped for the new one, it's probably like quite a good frame of mind to go into it with. So, uh, yeah, I could see why that would be appealing. Do you think they nailed the combat, Matthew? What what, what is it about the combat you think they got they got right? It did take a while for me to kind of click with it because, you know, you go in with this like real-time mindset and actually it's sort of not, you know, like the, the real-time moves you do are charging up the ATB bar, which is then for abilities and spells. And it's about strategically using those at very precise moments to dig into this pressure staggering system. And each enemy has basically a particular combo of moves that will like unlock it and then let you absolutely murder it at speed. And if you don't get to those combinations, the fights can be quite grueling or very drawn out. You're just chipping away at this bar, not really doing anything. But when you start kind of using the assess skill to kind of read into people and you start playing more with the kind of materia, that side of it really comes out. And if anything, actually, it kind of leans into something that I really love about materia in the original Final Fantasy VII, you know, which is like how sort of versatile it is. Except here, you you know, you're almost encouraged to re-equip that stuff for specific individual fights you know i was constantly changing up what i had equipped and like the whole strategy of the game was rather than just bulldozing through with your kind of preferred build this thing really will not go down unless you've got lightning in this precise moment or whatever you know skill it was and i just thought that had a kind of depth and richness to it which which actually did sustain the game for like 30 hours or whatever like i was 
constantly changing up my sets and you know i felt like i was really engaging with that side and that's definitely something like when you go into rebirth you know i feel like they're a lot more ambitious with that like off off the bat because they're like well you've you've probably spent a game getting your head around this so we'll give you quite a lot of material and you can just go and start having fun instantly so yeah i I, that's probably the thing i rate most about it it's you know given that my big problem with 16 was i just i I thought the combat system or maybe the enemies they threw of you just like ran out of steam or it was asked to fill out a game that was just way too long for how much depth there was in that combat you know i felt like i did the same combo 500 times in that game once i'd worked out you know how to stagger things and this this game i never found that cheese tactic so really really good stuff yeah it's it, you know it was the part they had to get right more than anything else right you know that was because mm. if they if they got it wrong you had two more games of it so yeah. you know basically those fundamentals had to be correct and i agree I, I think as well it just felt like all those characters were meticulously animated beautifully uh, designed it just they just felt like so deluxe to sort of control yeah. like they put so much thought into how barrett plays completely differently to tifa and yeah when they didn't do red 13 as a playable character and when in the new one they were like we're not doing sid and vincent i was like i understand because it's like the the work you must have to do to to bring one character to life in in this way you've done the combat system must be an incredibly huge amount of work so yeah yeah i I get it you know i get it and yeah there's there's so much depth within those individual characters and then the way they interlock is is another thing for you to think about just yeah couldn't ask for more from that side of the game so the one more thing i wanted to okay there's two more things actually i want to ask about before we get into rebirth because i think these will be relevant to discussing that just from what i what you told me over pizza on saturday about uh, your experience <laughs> playing rebirth matthew is the um how do you feel about the side quests in the game because they, they were a little bit more controversial i think side content in final fantasy generally has had you know a little bit of scrutiny this came up with um 16 as well um, how do you how do you feel about retrieving urchins etc in this the framing of them was really poor random slum people with quite boring slum problems which didn't really add much to, to the game that thing you said about like it's two slums and some corridors so much of the game was just run up and down these corridors between these two locations there are a couple of arena offshoots which they it all get reused about like 10 times because there's just no real estate in these game four quests are happening i think if those same quests were just in a more open space they might seem less problematic it's it's just it was so strictly linear between them that's that's why you really felt like oh i've i've taken this particular route i know the fastest route around this area of the slums so i've walked it like 20 times today that's where it becomes quite a bad hang but also just lacking charm and humor i thought very like my first side quests i didn't think the writing in them was very good yeah it's it's the thing where i think in terms of main quest pacing these games are really really good now and you know i just think that there was such a long period where uh japanese rpgs were being dinged in comparison to western rpgs where i think like now they're more on a level playing field and side quests are kind of like the one thing where you know there's there were still felt like there's still there's still work to be done maybe um on oh. the on the square enix final fantasy yeah. side but yeah the one that was pure death is in the second slums area where where Aerith mom lives there's a load of quest givers and quest targets in like a little group like a secret 
the urchin club or like there's these <laughs> kind of kids they're and to get to them you have to slide through this gap yeah and it's one of those very slow long like loading gaps and every time i did that i was really like just fuck fuck the people in it who made this and <laughs> fuck these kids and fuck anyone who gave me these quests i had to get incredibly efficient so i have to make that I mean, probably only a six, seven second journey, but enough to be, you know, you look at that gap and go, you know what? I don't want to cash in these (laughs) Moogle medals. Like, that's fine. I'm just, I'm just, I am less interested in what I could get from the kid dressed as a Moogle than I am going through that gap for six seconds. That's, that's the worst bit of the game. That one corridor. (laughs) That's really funny. Yeah. I think it's, it's just weird because there's so much love put into stuff like, you know, the way they frame Hell House in FF7 Remake oh. is that's like the awareness of the audience and what they want to see from that remake. And they demonstrate it so, so well in many moments across the game. And then, yeah, you get to the, the side quests and they just don't seem to have the same amount of consideration behind them, which is a, you know, yeah. a, just a shame because, um, yeah, there's so much else, so much good stuff going on elsewhere. Imagine me waist size expanding massively as I eat buffalo chicken wings in the pandemic in 2020, squeezing through that gap to re- get those medals and retrieve those urchins. That's just like, I was just like, That's it's a tough. no from me dog at the time. So, um, well, so you are right about the general tone of it is quite dour. Yeah. You know, like even your moments of victory is like seen as these acts of terrorism. And every time you blow up a Mako reactor or whatever, you come out of it and you see loads of people like screaming in the streets because you've blown up part of the town and they're all having a terrible time too like you definitely feel like a bit of an asshole in that game yeah i've I've seen some people like complain particularly about cloud how grim he is through the whole game it's it's difficult because it's the first act of that character's arc you can't have him like cheer up in the course of one game because that will fuck like the next two parts of this remake so he doesn't really get to evolve at all, and he does have to stay like reasonably one note, just sort of shrugging everything off, which doesn't seem as apparent when you play the original game because it's like five, six hours. But after 30, 40 hours of it, you are like, oh my god, like this guy really needs to lighten up. That's part of it. I could see that being quite a bad pandemic hang. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's yeah, it's sort of like. Those just those things just seem to align accidentally, but as a as a fluke of the universe, basically. So, um, <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. But there were like, there's definitely like moments in it where you know there are some like good moments of levity. Like there's the bit where Barrett says to Cloud, like, uh, "Used to think you were a little shit with a big attitude and a bigger inferiority complex. Quite possibly the worst person I have ever met." And that is the only line that got like a laugh out loud for, from me. Basically, I was just like. That's so funny. That's such a great little bit of um, <laughs> script writing. So I saw sort of like the potential for levity in there, but um, yeah, it was it was just I think it's dour by nature, really. And like I think in in some ways, it the single location thing is quite is quite effective for mood setting. It's sort of like you just know that your your end, the very end of the game, will be you will escape this basically. And actually, that's quite yeah. that's quite a good sort of like hook for an arc i think even if it's very limiting in terms of location what i think they could have done is you know how at the very start you see little bits of the city like um when you it's like the very start of the game when you see like sephiroth down like an alleyway and then there's all these shops around like that whole area 
I don't know why they didn't just let you go back to places like that. I guess because you've been hunted by Shimra, but you know, just uh, to sort of like add a new town or something like that. That's I think that sort of thing might have might have helped. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Why, yeah. why not let us go back? Yeah. So last thing I want to ask about then before we get into rebirth. So what did you make of the the story in the sense of the changes they made to the original seven story? Because that was you know a topic of much discussion. How, how do you feel about it? Gradually came to be on board with it. Part of me was thinking the whole time, well, if they, you know, if they set out to remake this thing, they've kind of gone a step beyond. It's almost like they're like, oh no, we're gonna, we're not just remaking it, we're gonna kind of comment on the nature of remaking it, and it's gonna become incredibly meta, where it's enough of an achievement to just have remade it. And like, the best bits are things that all happen in the original game, kind of fleshed out to be more substantial. So then the idea of going, oh, no, but it's this on top. I, I think if you were playing this and you hadn't played the original for the first time, it would be confusing as shit, like genuinely quite a flawed introduction of these things. And the fact that they're sort of throughout the game, like the whispers come in very early and I was like, what the fuck? What's going on with this? Like, I, oh, I, I wasn't really on board with that. They sort of explain it at the end. Um, I did have to read some articles online because i was like i don't really know what just happened there <laughs> it just got in the way of the simple pleasure of doing the good events of a pre-existing game in a flashier setting like that would have been enough and that was the stuff i reacted to whether it like fundamentally earned its place because you know mild spoilers for a remake it suggested that what this new storyline is doing is proposing a of a version of the story where things can change it's saying this isn't going to play out exactly the same way and so that promise will hang over what you play going forwards and make the whole thing a bit more exciting and maybe i do appreciate that because you're like okay like you know all bets are off i'm i'm, I'm kind of down with that but it's quite a convoluted and invasive way of setting up like they could have just done that at the end and you could have enjoyed you know maybe a five hour shorter adventure and, and had a kind of cleaner bit of fan service for that time and then just had some bullshit at the end and it probably would have had the same effects. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's probably the right way of looking at it. I think um, people saw it as a bit of the a bit of the Kingdom Hearts ing of Final Fantasy VII, you know, as in right. making it unnecessarily complicated, adding new elements that weren't there before that then add like layers you have to think about, but it kind of adds up to stuff that you don't really you don't you, well, you just it just feels a bit incoherent in the moment you don't and you don't know what the creative decision making you don't understand why it was seen as a net gain over just remaking the original you know so mm. yeah kind of an interesting one all right then matthew any other closing thoughts on remake before we switch to rebirth it's really good and worth playing i had a good, I had a good time with it and the best bits are are pretty special do you do the yuffie bits as well no i watched Catherine play the yuffie dlc though so i understood the story that's the only key thing really is there's like a couple of new cutscenes that lead into rebirth but that's kind of it yeah. really um okay interesting so then rebirth matthew you sounded pleased as punch about this game when i spoke to you on saturday what's the deal I'll say up front, like, obviously people are playing this game for the first time. I don't want to, like, scare them off and, like, spoil it for them. I haven't quite finished it. I'm about 50 hours into it. Um, Probably about two-thirds of the way through, I think. Gauging on, like, where I'm at in comparison to the original story. And I think this plan is still to do a standalone episode about this at some point. Yep, in mid-March. It's our mid-March Yeah, in mid-March. So we'll we'll get into the kind of meat of it there. Um, Basically... 
does everything that I liked in Remake, but tenfold. Um, I think it has, obviously, much more variety of like iconic moments to play with, and the way it grows all those moments out is as good as what they do with the wall market, say, in Remake. It's that level of love and attention where they're like, well, let's take this core idea and what more can we do with it? So, you know, you end up with as substantial reworkings of, like, the Junon Parade or sailing across to, from Junon to Costa del Sol or going to the Gold Saucer. And that stuff's great because when you get to the stuff you really remember, let's pull out the stops, let's make sure this thing is fucking spectacular, let's make sure these are the best looking bits, let's make sure there's loads of really interesting stuff to do there, let's make sure we do the kind of core moments really well, so like when you're doing the parade, let's make sure that's like a really good interesting mini game and you know, will kind of serve the, the cherished memory of it or whatever. I, I just think that's such a, such a good approach and after you've done a, f- a couple of like memorable moments you just begin to like anticipate each one and they they really don't miss i mean that's it, it's felt like a series of escalating like oh man they really nailed that you know when you go to the gold saucer that's meant to be one of the glitziest places in the planet it has uh, you know if you remember from the original game the gold saucer's got like all these different zones with like really distinctive looks and they just haven't like skimped on like any production value or set design and that's what i was really reacting to you just see so much more than slums in this game they really get it and they really get what excited people about this stretch of journey in disc one i think i can be as bold as to say whatever your favorite part is of this stretch of the journey it's done really well i don't think there's anything that feels substantially cut Bar one thing, which I won't sort of spoil, let people discover for themselves. There's like a quite a key location which doesn't appear, but I would say for maybe obvious reasons. This is so much of it. Twenty remakes, it almost feels like. Blimey. Like that's how much more stuff there is in this game. Fuck me, they were just building. You know, they 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 worked out the systems for remake, and then they just spent four years just making stuff to fill this game. And it's largely like quantity and quality. Fuck, gotta play this. I want to play this so bad. Yeah, it's um, it was the other thing that really sort of surprised me was you told me the side content. First of all, when we went for pizza the other day, we both had a meat feast. By the way, for those curious, yep. the meat feast at the uh, Green Park Brasserie Pizza Place. Meat feast, a diet coke, and a regular coke. Yes, exactly. And um, you told me the side quests. You compare them to Yakuza. And you also said they're they're really good in in comparing them. Um, so I'm just curious to know have they nailed that side of things for the first time, Matthew? I was probably being a bit overexcitable with that description. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I th- I think there is a bit of yakuza in here. Uh, I think one thing that they do is there's loads of bespoke mini games, which is maybe where I get the yakuza kind of connection from. Like there's. I mean, I, I would say verging on maybe like a hundred, like it feels like there's hundreds of the things. I mean, there's loads of games in this and a lot of them have a quest that surfaces those games. So that's that's part of it. Another part of it is um, that framing is just a, a, a lot funnier. Like there's a, you meet some much weirder characters, you know, some very strange things happen. A lot of the quests have like punchlines to them as opposed to just 
get me this suit, mister. Thanks, mister. You've made our lives better in the slums. End of quest, you know, which absolutely sucks and isn't entertaining at all. But here they they always try and kind of cram in the gags and it's a much funnier game. Like if your memories of the comedy in the first game, you know, are Biggs and Wedge being chronically unfunny this this seems like it was written by slightly different people or something it's very light on its feet it's got much jollier vibes um avalanche have really caught some strays on this podcast of, of they, in, they, they really suck in real i really I, I really do think they are spectacularly bad hangs it, it, it's partially also that they're visually like they're such a step down from the main characters <laughs> and because they're in the same room as them you just look at the the big the fat one Whatever his name is. Wedge, I think he's Wedge. Wedge. He just looks like he's got like no texture to him. Like he just he looks just like a dot like a doll next to D- Tifa. It's really it's just it's fucked up and weird. I don't like him. <laughs> There's none of that in this. You know, all the characters are just like mega models. I mean the NPCs are a little a little simpler. Another thing they do that kind of gives it this hook is um every side quest has a a member of the party as a kind of sidekick during it they use that deepen clouds bonds with those characters and explore those characters sort of backstories a bit and i think it's valid criticism of final fantasy 7 disc one which i have played and the <laughs> rest of it so maybe they fix this later in the game but a lot of those characters are like out of sight out of mind you know you have the people in your party if they don't have a very specific story beat on the main quest storyline that like yuffie just doesn't do anything kate sif just doesn't do anything but here they're always drawing them into these side quests so you aren't just hunting for like who stole a lot of chocobos from this farm you're doing it with red 13 and he's kind of chatting to you the whole way and you just come out the end going oh this party really like matters like i spent a load of time with these people and you get to make decisions in a lot of the quests which change like your relationship for the positive or worse i guess with these characters and as far as i can tell and i haven't got to this bit yet the whole relationship system in this game is basically there to decide who you go on a date with at gold saucer right in the famous dating scene so that whole thing is just there for like this stupid punchline at gold saucer (laughs) which i think is is sort of indicative of like the ludicrous like level they've gone to in this game to try and pad things out in the name of quite frivolous entertainment but it's a mode that really suits them like it's just a i know we overuse this but it's just it's just an epically good hang this game that's great to hear interesting yeah like the the date thing is one of those much discussed moments from the game that is ultimately not very significant so i quite like the idea that they've hinged a lot of the side content around that that sort of makes sense because it's really confusing in the original why it happens the way it does so yeah yeah because here, like, basically every time you get to a town, there'll, there'll be an, inevitably be a scene where everyone splits up and you can walk around and talk to them and you get to see like, there's like a little symbol above them mm-hmm. which sort of tells you, like, the depth of your relationship. So you can sort of see the people you maybe need to do a bit more work on and, you know, I don't know if, if you're meant to deliberately game it so that you end up going on a date with the person you want to go on, Tifa, of course. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah tifa how old is yuffie meant to be i think she's like uh a teenager but i, I think like probably like 16 17 are you uh, asking if it's okay for you to date you that's a yeah that's a, <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough break 
Oh, no, I think she's sort of like, uh, yeah. Should we just find out her age? And so we are. Um, she's sixteen years old, Matthew. She's only right, okay. sixteen years old. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's only sixteen years old. <laughs> <laughs> that's what Barrett says to you. There's a bit where Barrett does a perfect Michael Caine impression, <laughs> and you're like, "Wow, this game's got it all." Um, okay, well, listen, it's Tifa. Tifa's the one I want to go on a date with. Right. I like the idea as well that you're like, okay, so. Uh, uh, <laughs> Women who are out, ones who might die as a result of this story, and teenagers. So who's left? Tifa's left. Great. <laughs> That's your criteria, basically. So uh, yeah, though, yeah. Aerith is is much improved in this game. I think. Like I, I didn't hate her in remake, but given what the story is about, <laughs> um, yeah, like they know that, and they they make her almost as much of a sort of linchpin of the the whole party as Cloud, and. They're, you know, they're definitely working up to that. But, you know, I haven't got there yet. And the game has really planted the idea of like, well, maybe it's not going to end the way you think it's going to end, which would be kind of crazy. But I, uh, yeah, I'm like, like, I'm excited to see where the story is going, which for a remake of a very well-established story is, is quite a good achievement, I think. I think so, yeah. Okay, so I've got about one week until people just start tweeting out, oh, it was crazy when they did this at the end, like Alan Wake 2 musical gif style. You know what I mean? So, yeah. This game is like, there's so much you can spot. Like, I'm really on eggshells with this because there's, there's stuff that I think is ruining a good joke is almost as bad as like ruining a big plot twist or whatever. And that it is genuinely funny. Like, I've laughed out loud, you know, several times in this game, which I just didn't think was going to be the case coming into it. Mm. Red 13 is really funny. It's like they picked one character and went, let's let's put a lot of effort into making Red 13 like a, a really good hang in this game. And it's funny that there's this talking dog in your party and, you know, maybe that's a little bit of like Marvel thinking, I don't know. But it's a bit like, you know, when you get the Marvel reviews where they're like, oh, wait until you... There's this one character and it's not the character you think it's going to be, but there's one really funny character in this film. I realise I'm doing that for, for Rebirth, but... Uh, if it's good, yeah. it's good. Okay, interesting stuff, Matthew. So I think that's probably enough FF7 Rebirth chatter for now, because like you say, people are just getting into it. So I realise I've eaten up a huge chunk of the no. episode with my... And it is really all I've done for a month, so... It's absolutely fine, because I think as well, it's the thing people will want to hear about, but they won't want it any more spoilery than that. I have been deliberately avoiding... I've avoided the last two trailers. I didn't watch the director. I didn't play oh. the demo. I've just avoided all of it because I'm just like I'm going in fresh, and that's what's going to happen. So, um... oh well, I really hope you like it because I'd feel like I'm a bit of a phony FF7 fan, or you know, late to the party on it. So I don't have that same relationship, and I don't oh. want to go around telling people who've been waiting for this thing for 20 years or whatever. Um, but you, you know, I don't want to oversell it. But I, I, I think it's, I think it's genuinely just really good fun, a really good fun, fun open world, silly, exciting game. You've put the time in though to get in to get really into this now. You said the other day that you are now like properly into this, right? This is like one. Yeah. Of, this is one of your things now, right? Which I've is been, I've been Mako pilled. <laughs> is that the term you settled on for it? That's yeah, good. I don't know. I've been Red Thirteen pilled. <laughs> That does sound more like something they would cook up in a lab, doesn't it? So, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, okay, good stuff, Matthew. That's uh, that is very exciting. I've got this and Dune Part Two vying for my weekend this weekend. Fucking hell, it's gonna be um, it's gonna be good. So, yes. Okay. Worm o'clock. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you.
Okay, so we come to my first game of the episode. I've been playing Balatro, which is, or Balatro, people are going to have a, a go at me on the Discord about how I've said that wrong, I, I expect. <laughs> but basically, a poker-style roguelike that you've probably seen discussed on the internet, a proper sort of like viral hit i think so I, I don't think this game was really on people's radars and there was a steam next fest demo last month and then people started talking about it and then it was reviewed incredibly well and I, now i think it's sold really well and it's you know i think people are calling it one of the best games of the year so far i have to agree it's incredibly addictive wow. um yeah it's it's really really good really like well well considered roguelike does all the things you want a roguelike to do it gives you those moments where you feel trapped by your own bad decision making it gives you those moments where things pop off because you've made good decisions along the way and really put time into constructing the best build it it's full of drama and excitement in it if you think if you don't know how to play poker or it sounds boring to you i promise you you will like this it's just if you've got any interest in card games or roguelikes this is just phenomenally well done so how much poker do you need to know to play this game so genuinely zero and when people told me that going into it i was like i was dubious because i bought it anyway it was 10 pounds i thought okay yeah that's fine that's you know that is well worth a punt 10 quid so did that and then yeah people were like oh don't worry about it you don't need to do that because of this this and this but it is true because you're going along basically climbing this ladder and you're you're against different opponents but the goal is to basically score as many score a certain number of points to defeat this opponent quote unquote and then move on to the next one and how points are scored is basically like you playing different poker hands and then you you also loading up on these different cards that add multipliers and stuff to make your score pop off and you're trying to achieve the the, the scoring question within a certain number of turns you can discard a bunch of cards if you're not happy with your your loadout quote-unquote and then you basically look at a long list of it's not that long but a list of different types of poker hand if you don't know how to play it then this will explain what all of the different types are if you select a bunch of cards in a row and there is like a hand you can play with them the game will tell you this is the hand you're going to play this is the this is the poker move (laughs) i don't know anything about cards sorry (laughs) this is like the this is the poker hand you're going to play basically and so check out la chiffre over here (laughs) and that's the thing i so but but you can the the thing is though the roguelike elements around the outside it almost feels like it's tailored around making the limitations of how you can play poker your strategy so what you can essentially do is Let's say you don't feel confident about doing anything except like matching two cards at a time. So you've got two threes. So you like you play that, right? And then you see you've got two threes, you've got two sixes. So you play those. And that is a valid like poker hand or poker play or whatever. You can you can play that, you can score points. And you can essentially you in between games, you can spend money to get these like planet cards which level up the the score scoring mechanism of a particular type of hand so you can basically level up the idea of matching two so (laughs) matching two will be worth much more than like having five in a row of the same um the same suit because you have decided to focus your you know you've decided to progress this one thing that you actually understand and therefore you can build a strategy around the limitations of how you understand poker which works really well because i I just i just played a game i got to the very last 
the last boss i guess the last opponent in the in a run i didn't i wasn't able to beat the opponent because it's incredibly tough but i did that the whole way by having these cards where like match two and match four i'd leveled up as much as i could and so i just needed to play those in any given game and then i could basically progress and i didn't have to worry about thinking in a more abstract way about oh do i have oh i've got five six um eight and nine but i need seven should i discard these cards to get a seven you don't have to think about that at all you're like i got two sevens fine i'll play them you know what i mean so it's sort of doubled down and boiled it down to uno (laughs) i guess there's a little bit of that yeah but the other interesting wrinkle to it as well as being able to sort of progress um these different uh, types of plays to to make them score more there's another multiplying factor to it which is you have like a a, a, a row of like five joker cards and the jokers all have different properties so they will they will they will add multipliers like whether it's like you know it could be like 1.5 times but then it will go all the way up to like 20 times and so the more effective joker cards you get the better chance you have of progressing because you're able to reach those higher numbers in, in your play you go from right. scoring 300 at the very start of a run to doing 30,000 in like in, in one play and that sort of progress is actually like quite thrilling and the joker cards add loads and loads of strategic depth to it i had this one card that essentially would level up the multiplier every time i played a pair of cards so not only had i leveled up how many points i could score from playing two sevens or two ones at the same time but this joker card its multiplier would increase every single time i played two cards and it was accumulative so you go into the next game with this bonus like stacking and stacking and stacking and you get that you get cards that reward you like if you just if every time you play a club um club related card then it will add a multiplier based on that and you basically like you're building these combinations of these joker cards in order to like get the perfect run i've I've probably explained it terribly there but it's very very intuitive and you very slowly understand how all the different pieces fit together but once you do it's it's just in, it's as engrossing as playing something like FTL or Cobalt Core last year. Our favorite, one of our favorites, Matthew. It's really fucking good. I'm guessing you've seen this talked about quite a lot. Yeah, it's it's absolutely on the. Oh, I know. I've got to play this, and it will inevitably be you know one of those game of the year contenders because just the you know the kind of people who are talking about this and waxing lyrical about it are people whose taste I you know really respect and just feels like I know it's sort of different, but you know, every year has one of those kind of you know just absolutely break out everyone's wild about it and all those people can't be wrong so yeah it was the poker element that that had me a little nervous so i'm glad to hear that's that's not the case do you think you'd come out the other end of this with the ability to play poker no i don't think so i think that the in some ways i think it's calibrated around dummies who don't know what poker what they're doing with poker if anything (laughs) if anything it's built up a disdain for poker and poker culture for me uh, like I'm sort of like, <laughs> I'm sort of like, you know how sort of, I guess it's kind of, kind of a blokey thing. They're like we're having a poker night, and I'm playing this. And I'm there thinking I couldn't imagine building a whole night around this one game. It doesn't seem like they might as well do a rocket. Right. Le- you might as well do a rocket league night. It's not like, <laughs> it's not like I don't Tony think Soprano and all the guys have hired out a hotel suite <laughs> for an incredibly high roller game of rocket league. <laughs> well, I just say you know people. I think like 
like men just like seeming quite grown up by having a poker night and they'll like pour some whiskey or whatever and i'm like is this grown up is this like it's the gambling it's the gambling right yeah yeah i guess so and then and that's then... part of it it isn't just the you know it's it's every one of those moves supercharged by the the, the threat of losing money yeah again you could just gamble on rocket league do you know what i mean <laughs> you could just gamble <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I so I sort of like if anything, I came out of it thinking, oh, is that that's what poker is? I guess is the whole bluffing element and all this stuff. But I don't know. I wasn't sort of like I didn't come out of it thinking poker was amazing. I came out of it thinking, oh, I guess this is just this is actually like a slightly simpler than I realised it was. And I don't, I, right. I think like, and then I also believe that poker has been disproportionately well well represented by TV and film. Because again, it's not that interesting. I don't think <laughs> so. Right. And I've always kind of hated those scenes in films and TV shows as well. It's always an arbitrary way to sort of build tension. I say that. I just watched an episode of Atlanta with an absolutely great, um, <laughs> great poker scene where one of the characters was swindled out of money, and the guy who lost went to bed to uh, escape this guy, and he, and then like um, this uh, this other character started banging on this glass to get him to like wake up out of bed and pay him his money. It's very very good. Anyway, you really have to be there. But um, yes. So, um, <laughs> so we don't see James Bond playing Bellatro anytime soon. No, it's sort of like, but it's um, I do sort of think about the idea of like me trying to go to a poker night after playing this, and sort of like you know there are there are no Joker multiplier cards, I, and I'm completely fucked. I could I can in my head I can hear Sean Connery saying Bellatro, and it sounds good. <laughs> oh, Bellatro. coming out of his mouth, Bellatro, yeah, sort of like that, Bellatro. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I've just looked at a screenshot of it. Uh, this game visually has quite big solitaire on Windows energy. <laughs> it does, but the Joker cards are where I think, uh, and and some of the other cards you get, like the sort of bonus cards, give you do differentiate it a bit. Like it's not. It's that's what I was thinking. Actually, is this on the cusp of like? Oh, my dad might like this, and I also like this, which is such a rare Venn diagram right. of, of games. But um, I think the Joker cards have like. There's quite a funny one, for example, where I think it's it's like one of the stacking ones where if you do the same move in like successive games, it's like it, the card is like styled like a loyalty card. It's got little stamps on it and stuff like you go to a restaurant or something like that. And right. it, it's got things like that little visual touches. One is like a business card and it's got like and it's signed by this this you know the joker is kind of a character the joker is a character who kind of explains the game to you and then sort of exists around the outside of the game as well so that makes it a bit more un un windows solitaire you know Ooh, yeah interesting yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really up for this yeah seems like do you think it's something you could just like dip into and enjoy like it, it, you don't need to sit down for like hours and hours and hours of it right no 100 percent. you can dip into this this is like you could play a game in about probably 45 minutes a complete run it's um and it'll take you less than that to understand it. It really, it'll get its hooks in you right away. I think that's what's great about it, to be honest. It's just so, such an easy to pick up and play experience. And again, like, um, you can tailor this around how you want to play it. So if you don't think you're going to, like, put together a fucking royal flush or whatever, if that's not your bag, then yeah, just do, just play it like it's snap, basically, and it'll be fine. So great. you might not, like, maybe, maybe you do need to, like, level up some of the really good, um, sort of poker moves in order to, get poker plays again i'm out of my depth here in order to like <laughs> properly finish the game because the last boss seemed like disproportionately hard compared to some of the other ones right. but but certainly in like learning it i don't think it really it makes you it doesn't really make you play it in any one particular way it just sort of like wants you to take it at your own pace i think a really special little thing definitely get it on switch because 
I got it on Ste- I got it on Steam Deck, and I was kind of like, oh, I wish I could just take this on the train with me on my Switch and play this on the way up to London or whatever. But um, mm. now I'm not going to. I feel bereft that this game won't be with me for a few days. It's that good, Matthew. So um, wow, yeah, another potential top ten uh, nominee well, that's already. Good. Crossing one of those off this early in the year—that's good for you. You know, that's <laughs> pressures off. Exactly. Uh, so that's that, Matthew. And uh, yes, I, I guess like those were the kind of like two main games we wanted to discuss. But yeah. We've got some other bits and pieces. What else have you been playing? I've played a little bit of Helldivers 2, which has obviously come out, sort of exploded, and due to its explosion in popularity, has been quite hard to play, maybe as they intended it, uh, due to like server woes. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. I mean, sort of thrilled for them that uh, this, you know, quite relatively small small studio has seen such enormous uptake of their game after you know uh, you know i think we spoke about this before the first one is more of kind of like a arcadey throwaway thing and this is actually like a you know substantial going concern now which is awesome for them but also it's kind of hammered it and you know there are frustrations from people who would like to be playing more of it. Uh, I have finally managed to put a chunk of time into it uh, over the weekend. Um, have you played any of this at all? Have you heard? Have you like been following this at all? So me and Jay Bayless went to play it last Thursday. I got it on PC. Uh, Jay um, accidentally deleted it from his PS5 when he went to update it, and uh, we didn't play it. And <laughs> um, so I played half of the tutorial, and here I am now. You know, that's a great, it's an an epic story of one man's triumph over nothing at all. (laughs) He accidentally deleted it. Yeah, (laughs) great times. Awesome. I think what I like about it is it seems very kind of pick up and play. You do this little 10 minute tutorial, which explains the basics. It's a third person over the shoulder co-op sort of run and gun game where you're given these brief little missions, very sort of snacky size, 10 minute, 15 minute um, you drop down to planet surfaces in these drop pods, then you run over to an objective, which is like tinker with this computer or power down this thing. Lots of variations on interacting with a computer, while waves of either Starship Troopers-style bugs or kind of Terminator-style cyborg men or like these sort of robot-y guys sort of swarm at you and you fight them off, ideally with a with a, in a team of four. But... You know, on top of this quite basic premise, it has all this sort of playful shit. I mean, mainly these stratagems, which are kind of airdrops that you call into battle. You you sort of input this almost like cheat code to program in what stratagem you want. So all this shit's kicking off, and you're trying to go go up, down, left, right. So it has this sort of fun panicked element to it but then you drop these stratagems and like giant space lasers rain down or maybe you drop in kind of more ammo or maybe you drop in reinforcements which brings your dead teammates back to life so you're constantly kind of raining stuff down from the sky that's a huge part of the appeal just because you've you've got these amazingly overpowered toys kind of just in reach but also slightly fuzzy around the edges you know when you throw them maybe the enemies will have moved on there's a little delay and trying to kind of second guess people's positions and make sure you efficiently use these very dangerous toys is that's that's a sort of constant thing which is which is always fun and the second thing is friendly fire is always on so it's 
it's sort of designed for you to kind of accidentally kill your friends, either with like friendly fires, you're strafing away, or that you drop these giant things on them. And, you know, they really know what they're doing in terms of everything has like a like a little bit of a sting in the tail. And again, like people have likened this to the kind of sort of satirical edge of sort of Starship Troopers, which is definitely a big part of this game's DNA. But they've somehow sort of found the gameplay equivalent of that kind of chaos and messiness and the sort of throwaway nature of these sort of soldiers' lives in that they all get mulched. You know, things can get crushed by the drop pods which are bringing down aid that you then hope to give to other people and things like that. So you're constantly kind of laughing. It's never sort of... It's, it, it doesn't feel like any of it is so substantial or so serious that a death kind of matters as much you know it doesn't feel like oh we were just doing an hour long run of a left for dead campaign and now we've all died and we've got to reset it like the stakes feel sort of deliberately throwaway which i think enables you to kind of enjoy the deliberate deliberate sloppiness baked into a lot of its ideas you just go in there you know play a couple of rounds it doesn't feel like there's masses of expertise. Maybe people who've played like 20 hours will say, actually, there's all these subtleties to it. But whether you kind of win or fail, it still feels like you've had a good time. You know, obviously, it's good to win and it's good to kind of fight off massive waves of bugs as they're all kind of swarming on you. And it, it gives you those kind of desperate last stands, particularly when you're extracting, kind of locks you in a single location. And then, you know, everything descends on you as you try to kind of hold off the landing pad and... I think my favourite thing about it is actually is when you when you call for the extraction, it plays this awesome bit of music, which is just feels like a crazy Mission Impossible theme tune. Like these drums start kicking in, and then this big brass comes in, and you're suddenly like, "Yes, we're gonna fucking do it. We've just got to stay alive for two minutes. This is rad." And it's it's like a game where just a hundred small sort of smart decisions have just added up to something which is just hugely hugely fun and doesn't feel like you have to commit to it forever it really if anything i think it feels stronger to me when you do only play it for like half an hour or an hour you know i I can't really imagine a four hour session of this so it kind of maintains that arcadey slightly more kind of popcorn kind of thing of 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 the original game and and other games of that ilk but just has the kind of triple a production value so it looks amazing and you know, has always great physics and always hilarious ragdolling and a really interesting experiment in pumping, you know, more money, more energy and effort into an idea which could very easily be just a repeat of the first one, this top-down twin-stick shooter type thing. So, yeah, like, really compelling. I'm, I'm like, so happy for them. Like, what a cool thing to have sort of exploded in this way and it was a weird one because i felt like we weren't like inside of it but we were obviously like covering it at work and 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 looking at it in previews and stuff and then all of a sudden just it just spiked in popularity like you know we saw the phenomenon firsthand but i still couldn't point out like what it was that made this the game you know made this the one which is going to be the flavor of the moment yeah just maybe it feels more pc in nature maybe i don't know it's it's a weird one it was i think it was partly that um playstation showcase trailer that went out like it just looked really good in that it had loads and loads of maps loads of action going on just looked really fun i think that 
that sort of like mm. just I think it was kind of on people's radars and that just made it look super super cool. Yeah. And then I think it just sort of snowballed from there. But it has been has been gradual. It's like sold I think each week it's been on sale in the UK. Like physical versions been selling like more and more copies and you know, it's obviously success on Steam is self evident. It's monster yeah. monstrously huge. It has apparently sold more than three million copies already. Like it's yeah, a proper unexpected success. So um, good for them. And uh, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, great for them. And it, it, interested to see what the kind of repercussions are for, you know, the the wave of other online first party games. You know, of which this was sort of the quiet shadow drop of that whole sort of thing. You know that you know this is their you know the first of all those live service games that they're meant to be making and working on. So does that like embolden them, or is it actually just this very specific game and they understand that i i you know fascinating stuff yeah first step on matthew becoming a big marathon head um that will um <laughs> coming soon 2025 <laughs> um so look forward to that but yeah it's um it's a funny thing as well where suicide squad there was so much live service game discourse and then and then i think people were just like no i don't want anything like this anymore and then like literally a week later this came along and people were like oh i really dig this and you know, I think the truth is that people always have room in their hearts for these things when it just pushes a button that they didn't know they wanted pushed. And I think that the very yeah. particular style of multiplayer experience they've gone for here just means that, you know, the comparisons is big to like Earth Defense Force and stuff like that, right? It's it's that mm. kind of like, you know, it's very kind of like Moorish and silly and it's not just about being sniped by teenagers. It's like, it's you know, and it's, and it's not necessarily about ticking off box on a battle pass i think it's just a a fundamental you know we're scratching this itch that you didn't even know you you didn't even know that this was something you wanted and here it is in such a complete form so yeah yeah, good for them um yeah it's almost like everything you get through the battle pass or everything where you have to dig a little deeper it adds subtleties but never like the main event everything in this game that's spectacular like the biggest weapons like the maddest stuff comes fitted as standard yeah and then if you want to like grind for medals to unlock specific armors or whatever like they're actually you know quite throwaway you know i wouldn't say they're bad or anything they're just they are so sort of not key to what makes this game work like i honestly believe your initial loadout is everything you'd ever need to have a good time with this game Mm. and maybe that's the secret to it. it just it's just it just works and is big fun out of the box um so you don't really care about what else is there yeah okay good stuff well i've got a copy i will play it and i will come back with thoughts at some point as well matthew um because we should play we should play some online together we always say that about games get me me in with jay bayless (laughs) we just never really are able to make it work though do you know what i mean like it's sort of or you know neither of us follow up afterwards like what was the last thing we talked about playing screaming piss as i get eaten by a giant bug always that's that's a great time if you ask me but um it's just (laughs) never quite happened on the practicality front i don't know you've always got like a 60 hour jrpg to be playing you know what i mean so um yeah yeah although you are exiting that tunnel now do you know what you'll do with your life after ff7 rebirth's done uh i don't know i'm kind of eyeing up that um whatever that game with unicorn in the title is oh unicorn overlord yeah 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 it's uh it's that which is just like one week after ff7 rebirth so yeah nice i look forward to you you becoming a big vanilla warehead next matthew i think that's (laughs) on the cards for you this year okay last game i'm going to talk about this episode then is tomb raider so i've been playing the remastered trilogy they put out um i've never ever played tomb raider one the original right i played a bit of tomb raider 2 i had 
I had I borrowed it from a friend for about I don't know, a year and a half or something. And I think I only ever got as far as the Venice levels and that. Got out of that big hole you start in. Found the jumping incredibly tricky. Because I was playing on PC, we didn't have a gamepad. So I just I was trying to play it with like a flight stick because that's what oh we had. Oh my God, that's the true Bruce Wayne trying to get out of the pit <laughs> version of the game. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, so yeah, did that. And I thought it was like... It was significant at the time. I remember going around a mate's house and doing the whole going around the mansion thing. And, you know, it was it was obviously a very key part of the um, 90s sort of like gaming landscape and the, the, the rise of 3D games. And I fully copped to the fact that it's probably the most egregious game m- missing or series missing from the PS1 draft we just did, Matthew. So, no. No? You don't think too many no, should don't, No, don't bow to that. <laughs> Only that one. I'm not getting into the, oh, I'm very disappointed you didn't talk about Tomba. That guy was, you know, I, I don't think that that I necessarily agree with, but um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I hadn't played it before and played the entire first section of the game. This remaster, I think, is quite is quite nice because it's not like remake level production values but neither is it an insignificant sort of spruce up so what they've basically done is retain the overall style of the game but improve like the character models and the textures and the environments but it kind of looks like ps3 era quality well it's sort of like some things look ps3 quality some things look more sort of like modern modern looking Um, but it's just i think it's just quite a tastefully done art art lift basically mm. um and at the same time you can just tap a button at any time and you can see the old art style which is a really nice touch and they've kept the original tank controls as well they've added some modern control scheme which i've not tried i've only played it with the um tank controls and it is like refreshingly obtuse it is like <laughs> because they just none of the because like it's Tomb raider is basically a contemporary of mario 64 right they just hadn't figured out how to do this stuff and in 1996 yet so it's so comically precise in like if you have to be stood at the end of a pillar and jump at a certain point in order to reach the next pillar or you have to do like a running jump sometimes and so you'll do these very gradual stepping back in order to get the the right run up but i quite like that like the the platforming and the it kind of is is a puzzle in itself and i think as someone who is, you know, is more used to playing games like, well, not exclusively because I was playing games in the nineties as well, but you know, playing the likes of Uncharted and seeing those games celebrated so much when the platforming was never really challenging in those games. At most, you know, you you had to sort of like leap onto a ledge before a rock collapsed and and you died. And you know, I find those games very enjoyable. But it's nice to play these games that are like, no, you just have to be able to do this. And if you can't do this, you can't fucking progress. So get used to it. I just being confronted right. with that i've i've very much enjoyed but the other thing i like about it is the horror game vibes of it it's strangely spooky and scary like the mm. it, the original so i didn't realize that the the t-rex encounter is a very famous it's the most famous set piece from that original set of games probably right it's sort of like it's one of those gaming moments that people talked about afterwards i was aware of it um i didn't realize how early early it would come in the game nor did I realise that in the original graphic settings, you are fighting it under this black sky. And it really is quite spooky to just see it emerge in the distance <laughs> and then and then just charge towards you. And like and you just look up and it's like it's nighttime, but there's nothing but pitch black there. And it's probably because they can't have a T-Rex on screen and have a fucking sky because it was the PS1. So, you yeah. know, that was probably why it is the way it is. But yeah, did you ever get that vibe from the original Two Raiders, Matthew? That sort of weird thing of like the limitations making it maybe scarier than the developers intended it to be. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, going back and, and re-watching some of them. I mean, when I played Anniversary, I remember, you know, watching videos of earlier bits of it just to see, you know, how much they changed. And I love Anniversary and it, it, it puts a much more, like, accessible sort of modern face on the game. But something is, is definitely lost in, you know, how, like, well lit it is and just the clarity of what each space is going for. Like, there's, there's a strange sort of knobbly sort of unknowableness to the original games, especially with the, yeah, with the original graphics. You know, the strange kind of textures sort of bending in weird ways, or some of it has it looks like a sort of magic eye picture, which adds a sort of weirdness to it. You know, you just can't really put your finger on any of it. I'd like to think some of it was deliberate, given, like, the idea is that you are going into these threatening, spooky places. Yeah. Um... I, I, admittedly, like the dinosaur against the black sky is probably just a tech limitation, you know, <laughs> rather than like you know they were trying to go for some Silent Hill stuff or whatever. Um, but uh, well, a very different type of horror. But you know, yeah, it's sort of yeah, yeah. But it is yeah, there is something quite cursed and lonely about those games by by design. So it can only further fuel that. Yeah, it's also got this just lack of restraint to it that you just don't see in modern games. In the fact that you go from fighting dogs like in or wolves in and bats in like caves to like a velociraptor turns up and they never explain why that's there. And then yeah. after that, you know, like a moment later you're fighting the T-Rex and then after that you're in the a tomb and then like a mummy comes to life and like it's never stops to be like, oh, this is happening because of this. And, oh, no, you've unleashed the this and this is happening. It's just like, it feels like people in Derby 25 years ago or whatever, longer than that, almost 30 years ago, being like, ah, oh, it'd be cool if there were some velociraptors here. You know what I mean? Like, it honestly feels like that is the intent behind some of the decisions yeah. making it. And so I, res- I really respect that um, and really enjoy it. And I think that's it's cool that they've gone out of their way to preserve these games as they were yeah. because it is a sort of it's when you think about the fact they did anniversary it is quite an odd project isn't it to be like we're going to do the originals as they were but then there's an optional graphical spruce up if you want it i just yeah yeah it's quite quite unusual but i think that's the kind of thing that people are after more now you know that kind of like preservation yeah it's, it's weird reading the reviews around these games or just hearing some of the discussion where I do come away thinking, you know, am I a bit basic bitch for liking Anniversary as much as I do? Because I really like that that Crystal Dynamics kind of generation of them, uh, you know, Legend and Underworld and Anniversary. But so many people have such a deep attachment to the specific oddness of the controls and the visuals that I wonder, like, am I a fake fan? Do I not actually get what, what is good about Tomb Raider, that I prefer these slightly more sanded-down versions? Well, there's room for both. That's the thing, right? And, like, these just haven't been at the centre of games for so, so long. So the fact they are now just very easily available in a wide range of formats is cool. And, you know, that's the thing. If you've got an Xbox, you can play both Crystal Dynamics trilogies and this trilogy. That's like a... A massive stack of games it's like the complete lara croft history is basically like you know easy to access you know that's and that, and that's cool and yeah i think it's um it's it's nice to revisit these as well because i think that it just ended so in such a, on such a sour note with angel of darkness people were just so down on that game yeah it just sort of like it kind of killed the series dead for like you know years and years uh yeah about three years at the time or four years something like that which is a long time in 
you know at, at that point that was a long time for a, a series to go away i think but yeah now it's i don't know i don't really know where people stand with tomb raider now like i don't know if they i don't know if people can really decide which version of it they they think they like the most but this feels like the the one that's got the most like yeah the most reverence attached to it i guess so um mm. i get you though matthew i think that i i like the slickness of, of playing an uncharted or a you know all the more recent ones it's that that is something i absolutely want for my games but i think it's something that is just completely counter to where this kind of action adventure experience like landed it, ended up it's yeah it's cool you know? it, it, it's 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 very odd making the leap from like lara in the pop culture landscape and you know that she became this this kind of quite sort of silly sexy icon for all of gaming and the gulf between that and these quite strange platformer games that she was actually in mm. the idea of seeing kind of like a sexy lara on the front of a lads mag and then going and playing a game where you have to very very delicately line up on all these platforms to get through some peruvian tomb and you're like what yeah (laughs) this isn't this isn't sexy at all this is really difficult and weird yeah yeah why is there a t-rex and like in front of a void you know (laughs) yeah promised me sexiness not the void (laughs) it's that thing of like that you know that attractive woman you saw on the back of fhm just got eaten by wolves like it's <laughs> it's yeah like the it's almost like the the c- construction of lara croft is as much of a as like a marketing entity as it is about like the the character as she's presented in the game so yeah that is um those things are quite far apart for sure and they always have been but yeah it's cool to just have them in this form i was i just never thought i'd play these and i just i did a kind of pass the pad thing with it with, with a friend and it was just it was a really great way to just ingest these this vision of what like 3D platforming might be, you know, from mm. the perspective of people in the mid nineties. Good stuff. So I'm glad they did that, Matthew. Yeah. Yeah. I hope it inspires a new generation of horny teenage boys to try <laughs> and make her take her clothes off by jumping into the swimming pool three times or whatever <laughs> it was. I somehow don't think that's going to stick, but um, you know, that's just but that's just a, you know, that's a, a shameful indictment of where we're at in terms of free pornography. Real heads do the new cheat in the original graphics. <laughs> yeah, in front of the butler. Yes. Okay, good stuff, Matthew. So that's this episode done on a very strange note as ever. Slightly shorter one, but I think getting a, a nice little taste of your rebirth um, sort of uh, views there is uh, is an exciting note to go away with. It certainly is for me because I'm... Please, I'm going to get to, to grips with it this weekend. That's very exciting. This is where you're like, oh, overrated shit. You were completely wrong and I feel terrible. Nah, I'm very open-minded with Final Fantasy. I'm, I'm always like, I always I always want to love whatever they've made. You know what I mean? That's how I go into right. all of those games. So, um, <laughs> And that has not changed. So yeah, I can't, can't wait to get my hands on it. So, Matthew, where can people find you on social media? I am Mr. Basil underscore Pesto on Twitter. And on Blue Sky, I'm Mr. Basil Pesto, no underscore. Are you still cranking out that Blue Sky content? Is there a lot of that going on? I don't think I... I think I've posted three times on that. Have I posted there this year? I don't think so. I think one of them was the Borgen tweet again. Yeah, one of them was the Blorco tweet again. Like, it's just... <laughs> <laughs> you're playing Play all the, the hits. hits. Yeah, Play exactly. the hits! That's what the crowd are yelling. Did you, you've got to put the magnifying glass chandelier on there next. That's your, uh, your oh, other yeah. hit. Oh, yeah. 
Do you see those? Um, do you see people talking about it on uh, online, Matthew? That trying to work out the deal with the magnifying glass. That really crapped me up. That people are like have taken it upon themselves to work out what the hell's going on with your brother's chandelier. That's just great stuff. Yeah, I like it when I see people talking about what they imagined the chandelier was going <laughs> to be before they looked at the picture. Yeah, I really haven't like missold it. It's everything I've told you it's going to be, but people can't quite picture the magnifying glasses. That's that's the magic bit for me. Yeah, it's good stuff. So go check that out. Um, I, I'm no doubt it will come up again at some point the chandelier um so yes thank you so much for listening backpage pod on twitter and uh, blue sky and also i'm samuel w roberts on those platforms as well there's also backpage games at gmail.com if you'd like to email us this month we will be doing another games court so if you'd like to submit entries for that you can do so via the email or you can submit them on discord there's a special channel for them i say special a very cursed channel for them but that's out there for you to discover thank you so much for listening i'll be back next week goodbye goodbye